Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. You may be wondering what's up with this mini-episode. I wanted to let you know I just launched my first Patreon campaign to help support the show. Each month I'll be releasing exclusive mini-episodes like this one that will only be available to my Patreon supporters. I'm posting this first one to the public so that everyone can get a taste of what I have in store. Subscribers on Patreon will also get access to all sorts of other benefits based on their level of support, including stickers, thank you notes personalized with a handwritten message by me, shoutouts to my supporters of my regular show, and other swag including the Conspirators t-shirts and tote bags. In the meantime, kick back, relax, and enjoy this mini-episode. After Napoleon sold Louisiana to the United States in the Louisiana Purchase back in 1803, a mass influx of immigrants began moving into the area looking to claim some land of their own and make their fortune. French, Creoles, and of course plenty of Americans were the first to move in. Over time they'd be joined by large numbers of immigrants from Ireland, Germany, and Italy. Nearly 90% of the people who came to Louisiana moved in and around New Orleans which became the center of the local sugar and cotton plantations. As a principal port and major agricultural area, New Orleans played a massive role in the African slave trade, as well as being a major hub for business throughout much of the United States. Back around 1830, a Philadelphia-born dentist named Joseph Gardette arrived in New Orleans, hoping to achieve a bit of the business success he'd had back in Crescent City. It turned out to be the right move, because within a few years, Gardet's business was flourishing. He commissioned a local architect named Frederick Roy to design a stately mansion worthy of a man of his wealth and status. The three-and-a-half-story mansion at 716 Dauphine was the envy of many people around town. With its pink exterior, raised half-basement, and elevated first floor. Just three years after its construction, the house was sold to a wealthy Creole plantation owner, Jean-Baptiste Lepret, who bought it for what was then the astonishing figure of $20,000. Lepret was incredibly wealthy, and by the 1850s he hired workers to add an ornate wrought iron lace to each of the balconies that only added to the building's signature charm and beauty. The Leprets lived part of the year in the home, splitting their time there with life on the plantation. At least that's how things were until the Civil War broke out and put a major crimp in the family's fortune. The economic downturn that followed the war put an end to much of their cash flow and caused the bank to begin threatening to foreclose. Jean-Baptiste Lepret was in a desperate position. He needed money, and he needed it fast. He began to put out feelers for wealthy tenants looking to lease his grand mansion in the heart of the French Quarter. Lepret was soon approached by a man of Middle Eastern descent who claimed to be the envoy of a wealthy Turkish sultan. The sultan was interested in renting some property in the French Quarter. Lepret's salvation was at hand. 
As it turned out, Lepret's salvation arrived by boat to the port of New Orleans. Lepret was dumbstruck by the parade of people that disembarked the ship. There was a harem of beautiful, exotic-looking women dressed in colorful silks and satins. The women were followed by the eunuchs, the only guards who could be trusted around them. They were huge men dressed in dark military garb, each carrying a long bayonet. Then came the sultan himself. The man practically glowed in the sunlight from all the gold and jewelry he was decorated with. After the main entourage came a number of workmen carrying loads of elaborate hand-carved wooden furniture, silk tapestries, priceless vases, painted portraits, and Persian rugs. It was more wealth and treasure than any of the locals had ever seen in their lives. The elaborate procession went down Jackson Square past the Grand St. Louis Cathedral, then turned toward the mansion on Dauphine Street. Soon, extra locks were added to the mansion's doors, heavy draperies were hung over all the windows, and chains and more locks were put on the gates. Soon, as night fell, the mansion really came alive. Each night, the neighbors could hear loud music blaring out across the warm breeze. They could hear many voices, the laughter of women and the chuckles of men, and later the moans of people engaged in acts of pleasure. The rich aroma of opium smoke could be smelled wafting out through the open windows. If this had happened in any other town, the local Puritans would never have put up with this level of debauchery. But this was New Orleans, and most of the locals were just put out that they never got an invitation to any of the Sultan's lavish parties. In fact, no one from New Orleans ever received an invitation to enter the Sultan's palace, as it came to be known, under any circumstances. All goods were to be left on the doorstep, and all deliveries were paid for with gold that was left in the package's place. This went on for months, until one night a huge storm struck the city. That evening the residents of the French Quarter drew their shutters and buckled down for the night as they waited for the storm to pass. By the next morning the storm had moved on and given way to the most beautiful cloudless blue sky. People began to open up their homes and move about the quarter. One early riser was a man who happened to find himself strolling down Dauphine Street, enjoying the fresh morning air, when something stopped him dead in his tracks right in front of the mansion. A river of red ran down the front steps of the Sultan's Palace. Blood trickled out from under the front door and pooled in the pits and cracks of the uneven stone sidewalk. The man spun around and ran down the street, screaming for help. The police soon arrived on the scene and they were nearly as flabbergasted as the man who'd alerted them to the trouble had been. A group of officers stood in stunned silence before the front door. No one wanted to be the first to open it. But then one of them finally worked up the nerve to push it open. There was no sound to be heard inside the massive house, except for the frightened breath of the men in uniform. Inside the house was a hellscape unlike anything the officers had ever encountered before. The air was filled with the sharp, coppery tang of blood mixed with the heavy perfume of stale opium and incense. One of the police officers immediately turned and vomited, then another, and another. There were bodies everywhere. Men, women, children. No one had been spared. Blood painted the walls, floors, and ceiling like an abstract art project. Some of the people had been flayed open. Others were missing their heads or limbs. The officers made their way out into the central courtyard, and there they found the final horror. There was a human hand sticking up out of the ground. It was the Sultan himself, and he had been buried alive, 
One version of the story goes that the person who had claimed to be the Sultan was actually the real Sultan's brother, and that he had stolen both his brother's wealth and several of his wives. The real Sultan sent assassins to kill his brother and everyone else complicit in his brother's treachery. Another version of the tale said that they were all killed by pirates who had been involved in some shady dealings with the Sultan. There are problems with the story, though. Official historical records are sparse regarding the series of murders. Some people claim that none of these murders really occurred, and it's just an urban legend cooked up to entertain tourists. But the house at 716 Dauphine really does exist. It's still there today, as a matter of fact. And whether or not it ever contained a house full of murdered Arabs or not, many of the people who had lived there over the years are convinced that something occupies its walls. In 1878, the Citizens Bank of New Orleans did foreclose on the property. From there, it changed hands several more times, but always the legend of the Sultan's Palace Massacre stuck with it. In the 1940s, the New Orleans Academy for Art took up residence in the building, but it closed after World War II broke out and most of the students went off to fight. After the war, the house fell into disrepair and became a place where homeless squatters moved in. It remained that way until 1966 when it was sold again and broken up into six apartments. Over the years, some people began to claim witnessing strange things about the house at 716 Dauphine. Some people walking by at night claimed they could hear the sounds of a loud party emanating from within. Music and laughter spilling out into the darkness, along with the sweet smell of incense wafting through the warm night air. Some people claimed to have heard terrifying screams in the night. Others claimed to have seen the figure of a man pacing along the balconies, even during years when no one was supposed to be living in the building. In 1979, Frank D'Amico's wife went to bed one night in the building's penthouse apartment. Just after she switched off the light, she claimed she saw a dark figure standing at the foot of the bed, gliding toward her. She scrambled to turn on the light, but when it went on, no one was there. In more recent years, the house's new owners have claimed that sometimes personal objects such as keys go missing from the building with no apparent cause. One resident claimed that he was heading into the half-basement to do his laundry when some unseen force shoved his dog down the flight of stairs. That same dog refuses to enter the man's living room unless he physically carries it in there. Some people have claimed to have seen the Sultan himself sitting before one of the upstairs windows, only for him to vanish in the blink of an eye. Whether the Sultan's palace is really haunted or not, or even if it was really the location of a massacre is up to debate. But no matter what the truth may be, the house remains one of the most popular tourist destinations in New Orleans. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks for tuning in to this special minisode. We'll be back next week with another regular episode of the show. If you're interested in hearing more mini-episodes, or if you're just interested in helping to support the show, I've included a link to my Patreon in the show notes. Thanks again.